0: and the host of this show. Writer, independent filmmaker, and Hitchcock whisperer, Jeffrey Michael Bayes has been helping thousands of filmmakers worldwide for over a decade with his Hitchcock tutorials, books, and workshops, along with a Master of Arts in Cinema from La Trobe University. His intuitive understanding of the film craft has led to two how-to books, Between the Scenes and Suspense with a Camera, as well as numerous articles in Movie Maker Magazine, No Film School, and The Director's Chair. Jeffrey was also writer and producer of the award-winning Not From Space on XM Satellite Radio in 2003. And I also understand that you're with Carol's uh, publisher, Michael Weezy, as well. Is that right, Jeffrey?
1: Yeah, that's right. Michael Weezy published uh, both of my books, actually.
0: Oh, both of them. Okay, Mm -hmm. wonderful. Well, Carol will be joining us in just a few minutes, so we'll carry on until she's able to uh, connect with us on the show. But I, I know that there were a lot of things that, that she really wanted to ask you about, and there was one area that you wanted to start off with in particular that you felt was important to start the conversation with. Would you like to start with that?
1: Uh, sure. Um, well, um, I just wanted to dive right into uh, suspense and what suspense is, and uh, um, that's always kind of how I start out my workshops. I I kind of open it up to everybody and ask, what do you think suspense is? And I always get all kinds of different mm-hmm. answers. Um, uh, nobody really has a solid answer on this. And um, it's one of those things that it kind of it kind of comes from instinct. It, there's a lot of feelings involved. It's emotions. It's anxiety. It's different moods. And nobody really knows, you know, exactly what suspense is. So when you try to write it in your scripts, uh, it can – Become right. difficult you know um and so that is um <laughs> that's kind of what my book does is it kind of unravels all of that mystery and uh, puts it into a concrete form so that you can uh, easily use it and, and create suspense in your film um right. and what oh cool and well i, I was just going to say that um uh, even psychologists and film theorists can't agree on uh, what suspense actually is. So um, it's definitely a complex thing. And so a filmmaker that is kind of nervous about dipping their toe into it, um, you know, it might be a little bit scary. So I'm hoping that uh, with this book uh, that uh, this can help filmmakers. I, um, I was recently working um, – on a script, uh, film, uh, a friend of mine has a film that he's working on. Uh, it's a, it's a 10 page short film. And, uh, so he sent me a script, um, and he's asking me for advice on, uh, you know, how, how do I get suspense out of this? It doesn't feel like, um, it's connecting as much as it should be. Um, how do I get more suspense out of it? So, um, so I started reading through the script. It's a really good script, you know, it's good writing, Uh, It's got ebbs and flows. It's got, you know, drama and conflict. And um, it's a really interesting story. Um, And so he's asking me, you know, there's just something missing here. How do I get suspense out of this? And so as I'm reading through it, um, I'm looking for um, what, um, what ingredients um, are there already um, to enhance that feeling of, of suspense, and uh, I noticed that the very last scene of this the, of this story, that's where it was. It was uh, it, it suddenly became uh, uh, obvious that this is a story about someone that is afraid of quitting his job. He's afraid of telling his boss that he's quitting his job, and that wasn't revealed until the final scene. But what you know the fix is to get more suspense out of that is that you plant that early in the script so that uh, you make it clear in the first couple of scenes that he's decided he's going to quit his job. Uh, he's afraid to tell the boss about it. So he actually then goes into the boss to quit, and he can't do it. He's, he's scared to do it. He actually has uh, a resignation letter written up so he walks into the boss with his envelope and he's, he's going to hand him his resignation letter. Uh, the audience knows this, right? And so that's where the suspense comes in is that he just can't do it. You know, so the, the conversation between him and his boss just kind of dances around, you know, random topics. And they're talking about different things. But of course the focus is on this letter and whether or not uh, the boss is going to, uh, to receive it. So, so, then you keep doing that throughout the film. You tease the audience with that um, possibility, and uh, then you build it up to that final moment where he finally does quit his job. So, um, that's kind of an example of, of how that works, and we can get into more details of that as we go, I guess.
0: You know, as you bring up the whole topic of suspense, it makes me wonder as a viewer. As, as the audience member watching a film and, and thinking about what it is I love about suspense, what it is that draws me to want to watch a film that has deep suspense in it. And if I were to describe that, um, I would simply say I really want that plot to be smarter than me. And I want to feel like um, I'm having to stay glued to every minor detail of what's going on in order to try to see where this is going and, and what will come out of it. And would that be one of the good ways to describe suspense?
1: Um, yeah, that, that's definitely true. Um... And this kind of goes back to uh, the uh, film theorists who kind of dug into this and were wondering, there's a, there's a thing called the paradox of suspense, okay? Um, what that is, is um, it's, it's before that people thought it was just uncertainty. It's the uncertainty about the outcome mm-hmm. of the story. And that's what suspense would be. Um, and that makes sense. And that's true to a certain extent. But the film theorists, Notice that when you watch a suspense film the second time, you knew the ending, right? So you're watching it again, having mm-hmm. knowledge of everything that's going to happen. Uh, somehow, the suspense is still there. Okay, yes. and that's interesting. Oh, that's, yes. that's, <laughs> that's the paradox, right? Why is the suspense right. still there the second time around? Uh, in fact, in some instances, it's even greater, It's even a stronger feeling of suspense when you actually know the outcome already. So that's, that's what I find is interesting about, and that kind of goes to your question is that what is it in the moment? It's it's almost like a football game Um, because the plays in a football game are so unique. uh, There's so many things that can happen. Um, The, 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 uh, of a play that is, uh, shocking or interesting (laughs) or however you want to describe it. um, That's why people can record a football game and watch it again and again and again and are fixated on certain moments of, you know, amazing plays. And it's because um, in the moment that you're watching it, it feels like it's happening again. It feels like a live event. All right. Because it's, it's, it's triggering um, an instinctual reflex, in your um, emotions, and it makes it feel like a live event. Like uh, you're in the forest, and a tiger is approaching. You know, it's that kind of mm-hmm. it's kind of anxiety. It's fear, um, and each time you watch it, that's still there.
0: Right. Yes. 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 That's a great way to describe it. And I know that for filmmakers, from their end of things, if you were to describe what a framework would be for creating suspense, what would that be?
1: Okay. Well, um, we make it easy um, because I've boiled it down to a basic kind of formula. Um, Now, there may be other ways, but this is what Hitchcock did most often – Uh, I spent a lot of time studying Hitchcock. I've spent many years looking at Hitchcock films. Uh, We recently uh, started looking at at his television episodes, which um, had not been looked at very much before. He actually directed 20 television episodes. A lot of people don't know about this. But because they are short and they're more simple, uh, they're easy to kind of uh, analyze and pick apart what he was doing with suspense. Uh, a lot easier than looking at his movies. So what we found was that what Hitchcock would do was he would bring the audience into a secret, okay, that the protagonist knows. And that's the first step is uh, that the protagonist has a secret, okay? And you establish Mm -hmm. that if the secret gets out, then bad things will happen, (laughs) okay? So we don't want the (laughs) secret out. Um, and so you bring the, the audience in to that secret so that you share it. It's, it's, uh, it's information that nobody else in the movie knows. The other characters don't know. And we feel privileged as the audience that we've been let in on this little secret that the protagonists have. That's the first step. And then what you do is you build in these moments of close calls where that secret almost gets out almost mm-hmm. gets out. And that secret can be anything, really. It can be, you know, it can be a, a, a dead body, which Hitchcock <laughs> often would have in his, in his stories. But it doesn't have to be anything violent. It can be something as simple as, you know, uh, uh, like a pregnancy that, you know, you see that a lot in movies. Uh, someone is pregnant and hiding the fact from their parents or hiding it from a spouse. And a secret like that Uh, You can milk it for suspense and you can keep it going for as long as you want. You can, uh, you know, keep the suspense going for half the movie or the whole movie. Um, uh, An example I use in my book, uh, the kind of uh, uh, surprises people is that I say that uh, the Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan movie, you've got mail. It's a romantic comedy but I say it's a suspense Mm -hmm. film because the entire movie is about a secret um, that is going to get out. And it's that question of, is it going to get out? If it does get out, it's going gonna, it's gonna to mess everything up. You know, it's going to cause a fight. Um, and if, you know, so the, the audience through the whole film is hanging on to whether or not the secret is going to get out. And, of course, that secret is what is, who is Tom Hanks? You know, who is he really? Um, the fact that he is this uh, anonymous person that Meg Ryan has been emailing on the internet. They don't know each other. um, They don't know their identities online, but they happen by coincidence to know each other in real life and they hate each other in real Mm -hmm. life. (laughs) So if they realize that they're the same people online, then that can cause some problems. So that's the secret that carries through that entire film and makes it uh, very suspenseful.
0: So, would you say that that is part of the triad of secrets, or is that something different?
1: Yes, that's that's the triad. Um, it is the triad.
0: Okay, that's what I thought. That,
1: that is the triad, and the reason is because um, the audience knows more than the the characters on the screen. Uh, what the what the triad is, that's just a way of kind of simplifying. Um, who knows the secrets. Okay. Um, There's, you know, there's three people that could know a secret, the protagonist, that's one, the audience, that's two, and then everybody else, that's three. So it's either the antagonist or other supporting characters. It doesn't really matter. Um, But those are the three people that, um, that either they know the secret or not. And so that's how you, uh, pit them against each other and, and play the suspense. Um, so, in the example of you've got male, the audience knows the identity of Tom Hanks, um, but uh, the two characters, uh, uh, well, Meg Ryan doesn't know. So that's where you get the suspense: is uh, the two parts of the triad um, against the other. Does that make sense? I don't know if it makes okay. sense or not, but yeah that's uh, no, it
0: does. Yes, yeah, that's,
1: yeah. that's kind of how it works, and. and and it's because you want the audience to know more than uh, everybody else. That's the key to suspense. That's what Hitchcock always said, is that uh, the more you tell the audience, uh, the, the, the better the suspense is going to be. And I guess that kind of goes back to that, that paradox. You know, why is it more suspenseful the second time you watch it? It's because you know that information the second time. And having that information then allows you to, uh, sit and watch things play out, but it's a frustration in the audience because they can't they can't reach in and change anything. They can't, you know, they can't uh, mm-hmm. alter events. You know, they can't step in and, right. and rescue the hero. So that's mm-hmm. what makes suspense enjoyable: is that we can't step in and change things.
0: Right it's almost like you're the best friend of the character, but you can't do anything to alter <laughs> like <laughs> you, exactly. you can't give input you can't you just <laughs> yes, and you want exactly. so much to try to help yes, makes a lot of sense there too yes, well, um there's an expression that you use in your work uh, actually, Hitchcock is the one who said it, but you 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 mention it in your book. Would you explain what Hitchcock meant by "Let the audience play God"?
1: Um, that's pretty much. That's exactly what we've been talking about. Is that the audience?
0: That is amazing. Uh,
1: that's it's the omnipresent uh, viewpoint that we know everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there there's exceptions to that, and you know, there's different levels of knowledge so that uh, the audience knows more as the film goes on. Uh, there's some films where, uh, you know, we know there's a secret. We know kind of what the secret is, but it turns out to be something entirely different. You know, we were tricked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it can be complicated. But the, the basic idea is that um, he calls it the bomb theory. Have you heard of the bomb theory? <laughs>
0: No, no, no. What's that?
1: Okay, well, Hitchcock's bomb theory is that um, if you have a a scene uh, where people are just sitting in a restaurant talking, okay, well, that's not a very interesting scene. But if you um, put a bomb under the table and the characters don't know about it, the people in the restaurant continue talking, um, they have no idea there's a bomb, so they start talking about, you know, their friend's birthday party or whatever. And this bomb is sitting there and it's, uh, you know, it's ready to go off any moment. And, but the audience knows about it. So the theory is that because the audience knows, then that's where you get suspense because the, the characters have no idea what's going on. So um, <laughs> the audience knows everything and the characters know nothing. And so uh, it, 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 it provokes us, again, to reach in and, and say, wait a minute, <laughs> there's a bomb under the table, right? Um, but we can't do that. <laughs> yeah. And it's that frustration that, that that's the entertainment part. That's what's enjoyable for us. For some reason, it's enjoyable for us to be provoked <laughs> into feeling like we can actually step in. But, of course, we can't. Yeah. And it's almost, like, it's almost like a game, you know?
0: Yes. You almost wish that it were like a murder mystery where you get to physically be present and interact with the game, but you cannot (laughs) because it's film. Well, now, there are suspense myths that you talk about as well. And uh, some of them you may have already mentioned, but there's one in particular, my villain should be evil incarnate, for example. Mm -hmm. Would you talk about some of those?
1: And that's a myth, which means you shouldn't do it. Um, That's that's (laughs) one of these things about suspense that people kind of, um, they think is suspense, but it really isn't. Um, They think that uh, if you make the villain extra creepy or, extra ugly or extra sinister, then somehow that's going to make things more suspenseful. Um, And Hitchcock said, no, that it doesn't work like that. Uh, In fact, the exact opposite. Uh, You should feel sympathy for the villain and you should be able to relate to the villain. um, And you should understand the villain on a personal level, uh, even though we know he's doing the wrong thing, but he has a good reason for it. That kind of scenario um, where the protagonist is just as, you know, kind of uh, morally uh, inept as the villain that makes things more suspenseful because you don't know uh, which way this is going to go. You know, Um, it, it goes back to a football game. You have two sides of the football game and you want one side to win, but it's very possible that the other side will win. And um uh, that is kind of how you should look at your villain, uh, um, you know, make it possible that he could win and that maybe he's the protagonist all along, you know, uh, that could be the twist. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the reason Hitchcock said that, um, and he said that um, he doesn't, he didn't like to use uh, like uh, professional, uh, serial killers, and, uh, uh, and people that are so creepy and out of the ordinary that we couldn't relate to them, and that it's because of that that we can't relate to them. I think uh, Norman, Norman Bates is the popular example in Psycho. Um, he obviously has a mental problem, um, but he's likable enough uh, that we are meant to side with him for a certain part of the film. Um, and if you look at a lot of Hitchcock villains, it's all kind of, um, you know, it's a gray area between the hero and the villain, you know, who's, who's right.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, an example that pops in my mind also of a, a villain who starts off as the opposite of what you're saying, but ends up being someone that you have compassion for, is uh, in the Star Wars movie of um, Darth Vader. Yes. And and so that's, a, that's almost um, an opposite play, but still has the same components, just in a different order.
1: Yeah, exactly. So he starts out to be um, extra scary and creepy, and then you realize he's not really where he has a good reason for what he's doing. That's the important thing.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that same component is there. Yeah. So this is, yes. Now, I know that uh, you talk about these different models that you use, you know, for the creation of suspense. Are there any others that come to mind that you would like to share with us before we move on to another section of this?
1: Well, basically, the suspense models that I have in the book are—they uh, come directly from the Hitch 20 series that we do, um, which we we look at the 20 episodes of TV that Hitchcock directed, and so we just went uh, in sequence through each one, and uh, if a model showed up, um, then you know that's one, and and then if there was a different model, then we would. Um, add that as well. And basically, what these models are, it's uh, it's just kind of an easy way for a, a, a filmmaker to kind of have a checklist of you know kind of how to build a suspense scenario. Um, but it's all about the same thing. It's it's a secret that wants to get out, or it's a secret that um, should not get out. Um, and I think I may have flipped that. But it, it, it goes either way. It could either be a secret that you don't want out, or it's a secret that should get out but can't, okay? So in the <laughs> instance of uh, – there's an episode called um, 4 o'clock where a man is uh, trapped in his basement. He's tied up, and there's a bomb that's about to go off. And um, so the secret is that he's trapped and he needs help. He needs to be rescued, uh, but nobody knows, okay? So he wants the secret to get out, but he can't because he's, uh, he's got, you know, a gag in his mouth. He can't make noise, and there's nobody in the house. So then a gas man comes along um, and knocks on the door, and so he thinks, oh, this is my opportunity to be rescued. And the audience is excited because, okay, he's going to be rescued. And then, of course, the gas man can't get in because the door's locked, so he gives up and leaves. And so, you know, he, you know that was a close call, but it didn't end up happening. And then he does it again. Somebody else comes by, and this is another chance for rescue. Um, a little kid chases a ball uh, into the window of the basement and looks in. And so this is his big opportunity to get the kid's attention and say, you know, help, go get somebody. I'm tied up, you know, come rescue me. And the kid is not interested. <laughs> He's more interested in seeing a, 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 a roach walk by. <laughs> okay. So Hitchcock spends a lot of time with the kid watching the roach walk by. And, um, and then he does end up telling his mother, hey, there's a man down there. And then, of course, the mother says, no, don't look in people's windows. Uh, Let's go. So he doesn't get rescued. So that's an example of a secret that you really want to get out, (laughs) but uh, it never does. So that's where the suspense comes from in that. But um, the opposite of that is what we've been talking about, is that a secret that you don't want to get out, and you build suspense around moments where it almost does get out. So that's kind of what the models are. It's kind of, uh, it goes along those two kind of paths, um, but it's all about the secrets and the, and the close calls and, uh, and uh, how much emphasis you put on each. So for instance, right. um, you plant the secret at the beginning of the film or you kind of build up to it, that kind of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. So in the uh, chapter four, of your book. You talk about visual sentences where Hitchcock said films should be photographs of people thinking rather than talking. Would you elaborate on that?
1: Sure. This goes all the way back to silent film. Um, Hitchcock started in the 20s when the Ford sound actually came to the cinema and uh, everything was... Uh, uh, it was silent in that there was no audio track. There was music, obviously, with it. Um, but uh, the filmmakers had to use what they call title cards that uh, would interrupt the scenes, and that would explain what's happening, right? So it could be the dialogue between the characters. You cut to the title card, it shows the dialogue, and then you cut back to the scene. Well, <laughs> that was just as annoying then as it would be today. (laughs) So filmmakers quickly (laughs) learned to uh, tell the story in other ways. So they wouldn't have to show it on, you know, with text on the screen. So showing it visually, showing the story with the camera, showing it by uh, focusing on the, what the actor is looking at, you cut to what they see uh, and you cut to their reaction, So it's all about reactions and uh, hands and feet um, and and portraying emotions and intentions and all of that through visual means. And um, that's a type of filmmaking that was really popular in the 20s. And Hitchcock is probably the best at it um, and continued, even when sound came to film, continued that um, way of doing things that even though you had dialogue, that the dialogue still wasn't important. Uh, whatever the characters are saying to each other, um, that's not the important part of the theme that you should still focus on uh, the reactions. Um, what are they thinking? You know, what, um, what is, uh, you know, if two people are talking, um, let's say one is talking and the other is listening. If you show the listening, that's more interesting to the audience because you're getting an instant reaction to what's being said, right? So the focus is on right. the reaction and not the actual content. And that also can play right into your secrets so that if one of the characters has a secret and is hiding it, so the conversation is dancing around, you know, the secret possibly getting out in the conversation, so the reaction shots are then about the secret or the guilt that the protagonist has. And that's where, you know, the focus of the scene is. So that's what, that's what we mean by a visual sentence, um, and focusing on people's thinking, um, because oftentimes the talking doesn't have to relate to the scene. Really. It can be just kind of throwaway mm-hmm. dialogue, kind of like, you know, back in the restaurant with the bomb under the table, um, right. So, and the visual sentence we go through this in the book is that it's actually a language. Um, you know, it's how the shots are pieced together. Um, it's how, a, you know, how do you cut to a hand holding an object, um, and then cut back to a face reacting to that object. Um, that's kind of the beginnings of story. Um, you know, what's, mm-hmm. what's the object? You know, how is it relevant? What emotions are connected with that object, um, and that's that's what visual cinema is. It's it's actually language, and you can break it down into you know ideas, simple ideas. You can add more complex ideas, but it's all about what you show, and not what is said.
0: Right. So that would be one of the other myths. Then the idea that everything has to be said. Right. That, that being one of the myths that you talk about, yes. Now, I also understand that you do workshops, and, and uh, you know, when you do these workshops, um, a lot of this content is covered in there. Do you have any plans uh, for the near future that you want to share about with us?
1: Yeah, I'm actually in Buffalo next week, in fact, um, doing a workshop at the Buffalo Niagara Film Festival in uh, Niagara Falls. Um, it's going to be, let me see, I think it's September 23rd. Yeah. Saturday, September 23rd at 5 PM. Um, at the Buffalo Niagara film festival. That's the, uh, the next one I'm doing. And I do these okay. often in LA. So, uh, if you happen to see one, um, it's my favorite thing to do because we actually show clips of films and then we talk about it. So, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a good addition if you have the book or you can walk through the book, but there's nothing that replaces actually watching clips and seeing examples of all
0: of this stuff. That's true. That's so true. But you're doing a very good job of describing it <laughs> without having all the visuals. So it's really really making a lot of sense. Um, so how can people contact you and where can they learn more about your workshops?
1: Okay, well, my website is uh, borgus.com, B-O-R-G-U-S.com. That's uh, where you can get most of the information. You can uh, Google my name as well and find a lot of stuff. Um, And I have a list of the workshops that are coming up. I usually keep that list updated on the website. Uh, And you can email me through that as well. Um, Also on Twitter, at borgusfilm.com. At Borgusfilm, and uh, so yeah, that, that's probably the best way to get in touch with me.
0: Great. Okay. And your book is it available uh, on your website or elsewhere?
1: Yes, it's uh, it's available uh, anywhere you can buy a book. You know, major booksellers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, It's actually, I think it's live on Amazon this week, so you can actually order it now. Um, It's being released, I think, officially October 1st, but I think you can actually get one now. Um, Barnes & Noble has them. um, uh, Book Depository in the UK has them. uh, And you can also order it through the publisher's website, which is uh, mwp.com. Mwp.com. That's Michael Lisey Productions.
0: Okay, great. And yeah, uh, hey, so the, the you, you two might titles... notice too,
1: but I think I think the uh, Michael Weesee website actually has a discount. I think it's uh, is it twenty percent off? Something
0: like that. Well that's that. good to know. No, I, I wasn't aware yeah. of that, but Carol may be. Um, yeah. and the two titles of your books are Give Those Again.
1: Okay. Suspense with a camera is the uh, the new book about suspense and Hitchcock. Um, and the other book is Between the Scenes, um, and that is all about scene transitions, and it's about um, the importance of the transition from one scene to the next and all of the choices that go uh, into that transition. You know, uh, um, how, where do the characters go between the scenes? What do you show? What do you not show? Um, you know, the choices of uh, locations, um, how one scene should be uh, starkly different than the next um, to create a sense of demarcation and boundary between the scenes. Um, and then, of course, we go into basic, uh, you know, dissolves and cuts and things like that. But most of the book is about kind of the, the bigger, uh, the, the craft and arts of uh, how to get emotion and how to use establishing shots and and all of that and music and all that stuff that kind of goes into that um, the big moment at the end of one scene and then uh, going into the next scene so that's what the book's about it's uh, it's it's been doing really well it's been out for about three years and it's uh, kind of explores things in a new way
0: so your book suspense with a camera is mostly what we're discussing today. Uh, and all of the expertise of both books are really go into this conversation. So um, when you talk about the point of view sentence, the POV sentence, from your book, Suspense mm-hmm. with a Camera, would you describe exactly what that is?
1: Okay. Well, this is part of the uh, visual language. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's putting shots together to tell a story. And what the POV sentence is, point of view, sentence is um it's three basic shots. Okay. It's a close up of the actor's face. Uh, they're looking you know at something off screen. Okay. Then the second shot is you cut to whatever they're looking at. And that's their point of view shot. Um, and the third shot is um, you cut back to the actor and you see the reaction. So they're wondering. So it's it's uh looking, seeing, and wondering, and um that's the basic kind of formula for uh revealing things in a story. You can repeat this and do it as many times as you want so uh, <laughs> okay. the, the movie uh you never rear window that. um well, if you do it right if if each time you look uh it's something new, it's new information
0: mm-hmm.
1: okay. So if you cut back to the same thing again and again and nothing changes, that can get boring.
0: Right. Yes.
1: But if, if, if the thing being looked at is changing or the actor, is, his reaction is changing, then that's not boring. And what that does right. is it actually puts the audience into the shoes of the, the character. Uh, we're seeing their point of view. We're seeing exactly through their eyes what they're looking at. And that mm-hmm. is a very uh, kind of intimate way of, of being involved in the story so that if you do it right, like in Rear Window, you actually feel like you're Jimmy Stewart sitting in that apartment looking out the window. Um, and you forget um, after a while that uh, you're not actually there.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. It's so much like what you've been saying all along. It's, it's not just the words. It's it's what we're seeing, and most of the time through the eyes of the character.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: And and that's wonderful
0: advice.
1: I'm sorry. sorry, And that's important, even even with suspense or not. That's that's just a basic uh, kind of filmmaking. Um, The reason it works so well with suspense is because uh, once again you're connecting with that protagonist and uh, those secrets. So you're you're pulling the audience into uh, the story in a way that um, it's not you know it's not two dimensional it's not flat it's not linear it's uh, it's uh, it's more depth I guess you can say Mm -hmm.
0: Um, all the subtext is in there yes
1: subtext yeah yeah, well you have
0: some uh, your advice in your chapter on uh, on the camera as a musical instrument. There's some very good wisdom in there. Would you please share some of that with us?
1: Okay. Well, this this goes back to Hitchcock again, and he was really the master of this. Um, And this is all about the camera and how close you put the camera to the subject. Um, And kind of the takeaway of this is that you don't want to use too many close-ups. It's very common today for close-ups to be Overused, I think Hitchcock would think that they were overused anyway. Um, and what's interesting about we did a study of one of Hitchcock's uh, TV episodes, just a random episode, and we uh, counted the number of shots and counted uh, how many close-ups, how many wide shots, how many medium shots. And as it turned out, that most of the film was medium shots. Um, and medium shots are kind of the standard kind of nothing's happening kind of shot. It's kind of like your basic um neutral position. Okay. Um it's like a white canvas. And um when something happens then in the scene, then you go in for the close up. Uh and those close ups only work uh effectively if it's the first time that you've used it. So um, that's why you shouldn't just uh, use close-ups all the way throughout the theme, um, that you should be very selective about using them because what happens is that as they're used, uh, they get worn out so that you have to keep getting closer and closer <laughs> if you want to make uh, even uh, more kind of uh, emotional revelations. Um, and wide shots are kind of the same way. The wide shots are a balance to that. So you want to have wide shots uh, and medium shots and because they provide a counterbalance to the close-ups. The close-ups are the, one, the mm-hmm. things that tell the story. Okay? So anytime you use a close-up and that's on a face or on a hand holding an object or a close-up of something else in the room... Um, those are story that that's when you're telling the story. that's when you're revealing emotion, um, an emotional uh, aspect of the story. Everything else you should get, you should step back and and get further away from the actors. And this is orchestration. This is what Hitchcock said was uh, orchestration. Um, it's like it's treating the camera like a musical instrument so that... Um, you're using certain instruments and certain notes in a song for emphasis and rhythm, uh, and it's the same way with proximity to the subjects. So, so that's what that's what I mean by orchestration of the camera. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, so it's it's pretty much um, it's about close-ups and wide shots.
0: Right. Okay. Is there anything that you would say is in between that?
1: Um, yeah, so the medium shot. Um, so, for instance, the episode I was talking about, um, I think something like 97% of the shots in the film were actually medium shots. So, And that was surprising, you know, um, yeah. because, you know, today things are getting closer and closer and edits are getting faster and faster. And that's just a function of, you know, attention, keeping audiences attention, you know, and a a lot of competition on television and and whatnot. Things are getting closer, but um, it's fascinating that Hitchcock, even when he was working in television, which is a a more intimate medium, especially back then because screens were so small, um, didn't use as much close-ups as some of his other directors um, in television at the time. And I think that's fascinating that he was uh, so confident in his cinema language and that he, you know, he knew exactly when to reserve these moments for close-ups and not to waste them. I think, I think it's just fascinating. And I think it's yeah. a good lesson it for is. filmmakers today. I,
0: I fascinating describes it well <clears throat> he's a true master at that and one of the things you talk about that Hitchcock did in his films that was very unique was uh, and, and it was a form of branding as well he he always he, he was in his own films as well that was part of his branding would you talk about that
1: Sure, yeah. Everybody knows about the cameos. That's the uh, first thing everybody goes to when they think about Hitchcock is the, uh, the fact that he appeared in almost all of its films. He was in, you know, he, he made 52 films um, and he was in most of them. And it started out in his early films, probably I think his second film, The Lodger, he was an extra and he said that the only reason he did it was because he needed an extra and they didn't have enough people on set to be an extra. So he stepped in. Um, And I think what happened early on is that somehow it got the, the media talking Uh, the press and the critics would talk about his cameos. um, And it became very quickly a way of getting the press to talk about the director instead of the the stars in the movie. Um, And, that was something new at the time actually kind of still is Um, that uh, the the critics would be focusing on the director and his cameos and not so much about the actors Um, and he he used that as a way to kind of manipulate the press in a way to to get his brand out there Um, of course his brand was that famous silhouette of his face and Um, That was kind of a recognizable Mm -hmm. profile um, that, you know, it was instantly recognizable as Hitchcock and his cameos were very similar to that. So when you saw his cameo in a film, you instantly knew there's Hitchcock. Um, And because the thing that I find the most fascinating looking back on his history is that he actually started out in advertising before he got into film. He was, he worked in a, a company, he worked in marketing for a, a, a industrial cable company called Henleys, and uh, he did uh, marketing and you know, the product catalogs and, and things like that for the company. At the age of 15, he started that. So uh, wow. very early on, he was exposed to the world of marketing and publicity. And so I think because he had such... Um, exposure to that, he naturally uh, brought that in when he became when he became a filmmaker, and he was able to manipulate the press. In fact, he would actually plant stories about his weight. Okay, um, he would uh, he would plant stories, you know, saying I lost 20 pounds. Um, I lost 20 pounds, and here's how I did it. You know, kind of it was just kind of this this, uh, this uh, funny way of just getting people to think about his image. Um, mm-hmm. And the press fell for it. You know, that was, that was brilliant. So I think <laughs> what you find throughout all of his films and throughout his career is that his presence is, is so, um, it's, it's still there. You know, uh, it's been, yeah. you know, 40 years since his last film. And we can still kind of feel his presence behind the scenes, and I think that's that's you know mostly because of his branding. We know we're watching mm-hmm. Hitchcock film.
0: Yes. Wow. <laughs> so much in in all of that, and uh, and I presume that you know during the day of making those films, uh, people just trying to put their finger on. What it was that made those films so success so so successful may not been as easy as it is today. After having all that time to really take apart those pieces, like you've done in your book.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think um, in his early days in the twenties and thirties in the United Kingdom, um, he was he became a celebrity pretty quickly. Um, he was the most famous director by the time he was 38. He was the most famous director in Britain. Um, and he was the best there ever was. Um, and so there is that, I mean, there is the fact that he was good at what he did. Um, so you can't discount that, but yeah, I think that's true. I think a lot of these things were kind of natural to him and, and, uh, I, I I think it's true that it's having distance from it um makes it more obvious today um
0: mm-hmm. and I
1: think you know I don't know that filmmakers today could get away with that um but I think it's it's definitely something to look into um if you're you know a, a struggling filmmaker and you know do you have a brand uh, maybe you should have a brand maybe you can find ways like this kind of clever ways to Kind of get into the press. I, I, I don't know that it would be as easy today, but um, it's certainly something to look at.
0: Where you were talking about uh, one of the branding pieces where he would be in his films as an extra. I have seen this. It's so rare, but I have seen this in other films, but it doesn't have the same novelty that Hitchcock had with his.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's partially because the other cameos and i don't know what you're talking about specifically but there are directors that appear like mel brooks will appear in his films um uh but it's different because they're actually playing a character and what hitchcock's cameos what made them so unique is that they weren't really a part of the story um Mm -hmm. they weren't even really part of the story world he was kind of like uh, almost a, an apparition in his own story. He wasn't really there. He was just kind of um, kind of an extra, but kind of not. And he would actually acknowledge the audience in a way, kind of, uh, you know, just the way he he knew he was being watched, and that was the kind mm-hmm. of that was the kind of vibe that he put off. It was all a tease, you know. He, he knew it was for the audience. Um, and I think that's what was unique about his cameos. Um, it was also kind of like a practical joke for the audience because after a certain amount of time they expected it. And so they would actually look for it and wait for it. And, uh, so it was almost kind of like where's Waldo. So you're kind of looking for the, the Hitchcock cameo, um, uh, in this mass right. people. Yeah. So it almost yeah. became a game with the audience. Um, and mm-hmm. that's something that that's kind of it it kind of went from film to film it wasn 't just specific to one film um, so yeah, I think other directors that try to do that um, it's obviously going to be different because you know there's a different personality right. there's a different kind of um, approach to storytelling um, mm-hmm.
0: so, yeah
1: i think I think the playfulness of his cameos was probably what made it the most fun.
0: Yes. Yes. You really put your finger on it there too. Yes. Now the MacGuffin piece that you talk about uh, in your book, please explain that as well.
1: Okay. The MacGuffin. Um, Okay. (laughs) Well, I don't know how much I want to reveal here because I think you should probably just get a copy of the book and, and read what the MacGuffin is, but, um, well, it, there's it, a lot know, of sense in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The MacGuffin is one of these things that it's kind of elusive. Uh, uh, people aren't really sure what exactly it is and, and why it's there. Um, it's something that Hitchcock kind of popularized it, it, the, 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 you know, it's, it's pretty much like a plot device that, uh, carries the story forward, uh, uh, you know, like the secret plans that the, the villains are after. Um, and it's, you know, mm-hmm. it goes back hundreds of years in storytelling, so it's nothing new to film. Um, but I think with Hitchcock, it was unique because his uh, style of storytelling uh, was so, um, so much about the camera um, that it was a unique way of treating it on film that you couldn't do on a stage or in a novel or, you know, any other type of storytelling, um, that on a, on a movie screen, um, it's a little bit different. And what I mean by that is that the audience is involved, um, because the camera moves around and you're, you're seeing the story in a, in a personal way it's almost an abbreviated form of storytelling. Um, Because, you know, like we said, the the dialogue doesn't really matter. So there's an abbreviation there. Um, It's a shorthand form of conveying a story. And I think what happens when you focus on the visuals like that is that there's certain parts of the story that really kind of fall away um, in importance. There are certain things that we don't really care about so much. Um, they're just mm-hmm. there to kind of, um, to get the story moving. Um, an example um, from Hitchcock's Marnie, uh, not a very popular film of his, um, but it's a psychological film. It's actually very similar to uh uh, spellbound, which was a an older film of his, also a psychological film. Um, both of those protagonists had a psychological dilemma, and they had a trigger of anxiety. And with Marnie, mm-hmm. it was the color red. Anything she saw that was red that would trigger anxiety. The red is in the gut. Oh yeah. It can be anything, right? Um, you can oh. have, you know, the the trigger could be, you know, a flower. The trigger could be Mm-hmm. Um, a pencil. It could be anything. You could replace it with anything, and the story still holds, right? So the MacGuffin is right. something that's kind of—it's a variable. It's an interchangeable piece, you know, that can actually be anything. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think that's okay. That's kind of the essence of almost like a theme
0: in a way. It—it's it, a sub theme, almost like a subplot as well. Sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that makes
0: sense. In a funny kind of way. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Okay. Now, um, I know we we just have a little bit of time left. So if you could just touch on some of the information from your Chapter 9 on lure them with a Hitchcockian opening, that would be a perfect way to end our, our conversation today.
1: Okay so we're ending with an opening. Yeah, um well this is <laughs> this I is love it. um this is uh, it's something that um I did a whole article about this a couple of years ago and I I actually watched the openings of dozens of Hitchcock films and, and I kind of tried to find some similarities of of how he opened his films. And there were similarities. There were things that kept coming up again and again. Um, Most often he would start, first of all, on a sunny day, um, which, again, that goes against the cliche of of starting a suspense film in the dark. Um, uh, So starting in sunshine with uh, playful music, almost comical music. You'll notice that most of his films uh, start with comical music, Uh, North by Northwest comes to mind. Um, Many of his other music scores. Opening score is very much playful and uh, kind of uh, childish, uh, comical. He wanted to start out all of his films almost as comedies. And he said this early on that this was essential because first of all, you needed to get the audience on your side on, you know, to start to like the characters. So if they're having fun and they're joking and having, you know, a good time, then we're kind of, we're pulled into that fun. And then something bad happens. So that makes the contrast, um, that much more, um, intense, the sudden shift toward dramatic, um, and so that was his strategy uh, for opening his films uh, in, in a comedic way. Um, and also his use of the camera. He would start out most often in public. Um, you know, the camera would be in a crowd or it would be panning through a cityscape and almost randomly taking out a window to look into, you know, or a, a random person on the street to follow. Right. And so almost immediately, you're you're kind of led into a private story. You know, you're starting in a public space and you're just kind of being pulled along into a private space. And before long, you're inside of a house or, you know, you're followed someone down an alley and and you're suddenly involved in this person's secret world. And so that's that's another uh, that's another way to start out with a Hitchcockian opening. So, is that, uh, is that kind of what you were looking for? Yes.
0: Yes, yes. Okay. Oh, and you know, it's almost uh, as if it were the recurring theme of, of how he shoots his entire film, all in the very beginning, all in the opening. That's he true. He creates yes. suspense right from the start. Yes, Exactly. so tell us again uh, how we how uh, our listeners can connect with you through your website and also where they can find your book.
1: Okay, the book is Suspense with a Camera, and the website is Borges.com, borgus.com, B-O-R-G-U-S.com. Uh, you can email me through the site. Uh, you can get in touch with, with me on Twitter, uh, at @borgusfilm. Film, um, and, um, you know, Google my name, Jeffrey Michael Bayes. I'm sure you'll find something.
0: <laughs> right. And Bayes is spelled B-A-Y-S. Right. Right. Wonderful. Oh, it was so great that you could join us today and share all your wisdom about your research and the work you do as a filmmaker. And um, We look forward to having you back, though, so that we can dive deeper into some of this work because there's so much to cover when it comes to this, this whole area of work that you're doing,
1: sure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Oh, yes. Well, love to have you back. So, all right. Well, you take care and uh, looking forward to connecting with you again soon. and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidrakelin.com. That's david, R-A-I-K-L-E-N.com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.